Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Death in Paradise exec producers Tim Key and Alex Jones about the BBC show's continued success and expansion with spin-off Beyond Paradise. From Asatcha Media Group's Maria Ishak, Red Planet Pictures' Caroline Skinner and Cabo Family's Stefan Moati about their present programming strategies. And from Also Productions' Sophie Loren and Alexis Durand-Bro about the growth of Quebecois TV drama. BBC series Death in Paradise was renewed recently for two more seasons following the conclusion of its twelfth, guaranteeing that the popular escapist detective drama will remain on air until at least 2025. Produced by a Satcher Media Group-owned Red Planet Pictures, the title is among distributor BBC Studios' bestsellers, having been picked up in pretty much every country around the world, and gaining its own spin-off in the form of Britbox International co-production Beyond Paradise. Executive producers Tim Key and Alex Jones spoke to Michael Pickard about the show's continued success and plans for its further expansion through the Paraverse. I'm Tim Key and I'm the executive producer of uh, Death in Paradise and Beyond Paradise with Red Planet Pictures. Uh, I'm Alex Jones, joint managing director at Red Planet and sort of oversee all the kind of production business and finance side of things. Fantastic. Well, well, thank you both for joining us. Um, I mean, Death in Paradise, it's it's nothing more than um, just a phenomenon, isn't it, at the moment? It's just wrapped season 12 on the BBC here a few weeks ago, I think, and, and two more series and Christmas specials sort of already in the bag. I mean, how are you both reflecting on the success this show has had at a time when those kind of crime procedurals that it sort of has, has taken inspiration from are, are seemingly out of fashion or, or have been and are slowly kind of seem to be coming back a bit? Well, I don't know about Alex, but I'm split down the middle between being constantly astounded every year at how well it does and always thinking, is this the year that people just suddenly go, OK, we've had enough of that now? And then not being surprised at all if that, without wanting to sound arrogant, because it's a, a show that just appeals uh, to a very wide audience in a very unself-conscious way, setting out purely to entertain and to amuse and to move people. Um, and the tone of it and the joy of it and the fun of it and the puzzle of it and the, the the ability for a family to sit down and watch it together. All of those things, when people say, why do you think it's so popular? I think, well, all of those reasons are, are obvious. It's incredibly hard to make. It's incredibly hard to script. We work very hard every year to try and make sure that the show is is you know, not just as good as the year before, but better than the year before. Um, and, and we love it. And and us loving it means that we we never want to compromise it. So so in one sense, like I say, 50% of it is when the ratings land after episode one TXs, I'm astounded and go, my God, like, uh, I can't believe it. And then the other part of me goes, well, I do get it because this is a treat and a joy of a show that you can, you can just, you know, enjoy... Um, playing along with and and um and it's especially when the world is is cold and tricky in so many different ways this is a show that just sets out with its heart on its sleeve to entertain and divert so um that's my answer to that one i think <laughs> i mean i don't think i really got much to add to that i think um what i can say is that sort of tim leading the the, the team on death in paradise I think a huge amount of effort does go into it every year. And I think he sort of is uncompromising um, uh, in terms of making sure that the money goes on screen and we have the best show that we can possibly have. And I think that's, that is, you know, a, a real part of 
why it continues to perform the way it does. And I think sometimes, you know, looking at other kind of, you know, dramas that have fallen away after X amount of series, it's, it's sometimes because they're kind of, they become slightly unloved and they're just seen as a bit of a cash cow and, you know, a business proposition rather than a sort of a show that everybody loves and adores and 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 sort of puts all, everything into it. So I think the fact that... um it continues to be as brilliant as it is it is down to that sort of genuine love and affection that um the the the, the makers the program makers on the ground have and, and you you say it's obviously a, a hard show to make like any any tv show is a hard one to make but this one i guess in particular not least because you film it in in guadalupe which has logistical challenges but the fact that you know you, i guess you've got to keep those crime stories coming in quite a small arena is that helped or hindered perhaps by the changing of the leads that you've had over the over the 12 seasons or, or how do you go about you know making the show and and perhaps what would surprise us perhaps about how you go about that uh well creatively i think um changing the lead from being something we weren't planning on doing in a sense at the very beginning um has become the thing that is one of the things that's kept the show um fresh that i think that it, it once we'd done it with with ben or chris it proved that the show itself, the formula itself, was strong enough to be able to to be more confident with it and bold with it. And so, bringing somebody new in every every few years keeps those actors kind of um, uh, revitalized. You know, Chris, for example, Chris Marshall always knew that he couldn't do the job forever. He knew that it would be a finite gig for him. Um, and with that knowledge, you can plan the succession and you can take the show in a different direction whilst keeping it the same, which is always the challenge to sort of make it different and the same at the same time. So I think that the the biggest creative challenge that we have really is the puzzle and the trick. Um, the serial is hard to blend in in an hour when we've got a puzzle and an investigation to play alongside it. But always the puzzle and the, the trick are without a shadow of a doubt. It, it's, you know, there's a reason there's only one Agatha Christie, uh, and it's because she was a genius. And these things are really, really difficult, and they're deceptively difficult. And um, we work very, very hard, and we've been very lucky over the years. To Robert Thurgood, obviously, was a sort of, you know, a Christie obsessive. We had Simon Winston on the team at the beginning, who um, was equally kind of um, passionate about that genre. Um, James Hall, who's been with us since series three and now is kind of our de facto showrunner in a sense, uh, is, you know, uniquely qualified to help crack those puzzles. And then, of course, Tony Jordan and the writers that come and join us, um, all of them bring some new elements to that thing. But the, the puzzle and the investigation is the thing that, that we we are the most rigorous about and struggle the hardest with, I think. Um, and then there's the logistics of just filming uh, in you know in a in a foreign country um, in extreme heat and all that kind of thing that we've spoken about a lot, uh, but also the challenge of people being away from home for a long time, which is a tough one because it's the gig for which you get no sympathy. Um, Boohoo! People say you're off to the Caribbean for six months. That must be tough. But actually, I think psychologically, for people to be to be away from home for that length of time is is harder than a lot of people think it is. And then you throw a pandemic on top of that, and it's even harder. Uh, the you know seasons ten and eleven when there were lockdowns in place, uh, so people were away from home but couldn't do anything either. It was very very tough. So um, you know we've been very lucky to have uh, a crew out there, both Guadeloupian and and French, and also of course from the UK, who've just been been sort of very. On message and very passionate about what they do and all of those things i think you know have kept the show feeling 
fresh and um, and energized. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were just saying, weren't we, that we, we last spoke probably 18 months or so ago when you were leading the charge back into production after that first lockdown here in the UK. I mean, how are things now? Are things kind of back to normal kind of or, or are you still kind of learning those lessons and, and heeding those sort of warnings that, you know, I guess everyone has to deal with now on a production set? I think there's things that you can plan for uh, and there's things that you just can't. I think that I always, you know, a sort of mantra of production for me always used to be sort of um, plan for the worst, hope for the best. And when the pandemic hit, you were like, okay, my worst was never, never that. Um, and and I think for quite a while, it, it became sort of impossible to plan for the worst because it would just be paralyzing. So I think that's where... I think the industry was at its best, but also kind of struggled with that kind of that mindset of actually you're slightly winging it because no one knows what's going to happen. No one's got a crystal ball and we were in uncharted territory. But I think that, um, you know, we we have COVID protocols now in place, which we, you know, which we we still need to hold on to to an extent because we don't want to have outbreaks within um, a crew that sort of work so closely together. Um, and um, but 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 clearly, you know, the world has evolved to learn to live with the virus, too. And so you kind of can't overdo it and you have to accept that people aren't going to follow protocols outside of uh, work time. And so I think we, we've evolved to a relative, relatively good position now, which is basically everyone just being responsible and knowing that actually if you do have symptoms, you you know, you know test and we will then just sort of isolate that person until um, they're, they're, they're not at risk of kind of passing it through the crew. So I think, look, I think it went well last year. I think we're not dealing with anything that the rest of the industry isn't dealing with, with regards to sort of pandemic. And then on the other side of things, I think what I always, uh, Tim and I have always talked about uh, writing a book at the, uh, if the series ever comes to an end, which I'm sure it won't ever end, but um, because it is the crazy things that happen, the things that, you know, every TV show is difficult to make and has its own challenges. It's just often the things that happen on Death in Paradise uh, are always the challenges. You're like, okay, well, I never saw that coming. I never thought that was going to happen. And like boats getting stuck in the middle of the ocean and sort of, you know, kind of, I think we all remember when we had the volcanoes and, you know, and and there was some civil unrest last year, which which, um, was a challenge and and things like that. So, um, but I think we have a brilliant team who just managed to kind of navigate these things. And and I think that works well with our brilliant editorial team who are kind of quite light on their feet. And if something happens, we often write around it and it's like, OK, this doesn't need to be a disaster. We'll just do a bit of this, bit of that. And actually, the audience is never aware of um, of some of those kind of changes that have taken place. And it hasn't actually ended up compromising the series. So I think it's just about being smart and boxing clever really yeah fantastic and, and like you say you hope it's not going to end anytime soon i mean it's not going to end before 2025 you've got two more series coming up here i mean what can you tell us about the plans that you have in place now for those and is current leading man ralph little kind of returning for those what what's in store would you say now well i don't know how to answer that question because um <laughs> we've got press releases going out quite soon so uh, uh i'm never quite sure what we can say when i think that there, there are no there are no radical plans. We're going to keep delivering what we've delivered and mixing the formula up. Um, 
uh, as much as we can. Last year, I think creatively on screen, we were quite ambitious with the way that we told our stories and, and that paid off. Um, the challenge always is to make sure we always deliver what the audience expect. Um, uh, and um, we're talking to all of our cast about next year, so we'll be announcing everything pretty soon. So, But for the future, I think that you know we're always looking at the show and, and trying to make sure that it's... Um, it's evolving, and I think that will, you know, be very you know, key to us as we as we move into the, you know, I mean, we're about to shoot our one hundredth episode. Um, episode one of series thirteen is is the one hundredth episode of the show, which is a real milestone and something that we're very proud of, and something that makes you kind of want to just take a little step back and look at the show, and you know, always shake it up and make sure that we're doing everything we can do to keep it as 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 relevant and funny and moving and surprising as as possible so um yeah so there's there's a lot going on is my diplomatic answer <laughs> very good <laughs> um and I, and I guess part of that evolution then it won't have escaped fans that um you know beyond paradise uh debuted on the bbc last month and i mean how would you describe that is it a spin-off is it a, a some sort of sequel to obviously it focuses on humphrey goodman which is chris marshall's character who you know season three to six if i remember correctly that's uh that was when chris starred in the show and and you've decided to follow his character back in the uk i mean um at what point do you kind of start having those conversations about sequels spin-offs and, and where they might take you well the, the honest truth is that we always knew that we wanted to do more with chris because we loved working with him and we always knew like i said earlier that his time on, on the mothership if you like would be finite we worked with him again on sanderton um which was great but we just always felt like you know humphrey had resonated with the audience um there was a lot of love for that character and so creatively it had always been a thing in our heads to go is there more we can do with with this with this brand i guess is there more that we could do with death in paradise we dipped our toe into it a little bit in chris's last episodes where we came over and shot some material in London. And so it led to a conversation on the creative side about um, about how we could and whether we should try and kind of uh, see where else that could take us. So I think it is a spin-off, um, unashamedly. It is also a sequel to his personal story. But around his character, we've built a world and a series of brand new characters, all of whom we feel could sustain, you know, episodes in their own right, and all of whom uh, we've grown to love very, very quickly. And we've been blessed with the cast that we've got. And our mission in that sense all along was to channel the spirit of Death in Paradise, but not just do Death in Paradise in the UK. So um, you're trying to do everything at the same time. You want to attract a new audience who don't watch Death in Paradise, uh, but you also want to make sure that the Death in Paradise audience feel that they're watching something that's that's familiar but different. And at the same time as all of that on the commercial side, which obviously is much more Alex's, there was sort of things there as well, weren't there, Alex? Yeah, I mean, we'd, um, you know, we've been at various markets, met met with buyers um, who, you know, you know sort of where the show performed exceptionally well. And one of their questions was sort of, can, can you do more? Can you make more episodes? And sort of the, the sense was, look, making eight uh, was hard enough. And actually, we do nine now. Um, nine and a half, I would nine say. And a half. and so i think sort of that um it was really like the stars aligning i guess because that conversation was sort of happening around the same time as you know the questions were being explored on the creative side and so it just felt like it was 
actually a bit of a no-brainer um a sort of popular character something that that that, that, that was driven sort of creatively and business you know and from a business perspective at the same time and i think it, it could have been seen as a very cynical thing but um uh, and we did ask ourselves you know should we be doing this you know we not wanting to damage the mothership but i think it, it it was it was done with a huge amount of care and consideration and and i think that um that is reflected in in how it's performed with the audience here and on Britbox and in Australia. It was the biggest ever launch um, for a new show on BBC First, where it premiered in Australia. And so I think um, that it's worked. And and I think if we can apply the same kind of love, care, and attention that goes into Death in Paradise to be on Paradise for as long as we have, then there's no reason that that should come to an end either. And then how connected will the series be to to the mothership going forward? Is it going to be kind of a a Marvel type thing where we see characters coming in and out and there'll be Easter eggs and and all sorts of things and then people will be like, crikey, I need to go back and watch Death in Paradise from the beginning so I know what's kind of going on and then just you know, throw themselves into this world. Hopefully, yes, that's exactly what people will do. Um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, there are Easter eggs in it from the very start. I mean, I remember getting sent the score, Magnus Fiennes, who I love working with, um, when he sent the score through for episode one, put in little nods to the Death in Paradise theme tune. Uh, there's a scene where Chris Marshall's character arrives at the police station for the very first time and looks up at it, and you get a little hint of the Death in Paradise theme tune in there. And so little things like that. There was a lot of talk about the DNA of Death in Paradise and how we channel it and how what the show needed to feel like a Death in Paradise show without just being a, a ripoff. So I think that there's lots of nods and Easter eggs anyway. Um, you know, in the episode two, uh, a duck appears with the boat that um, Humphrey has bought. And, and the boat itself is kind of, we knew that he couldn't just live in a house. He lived in a shack in Death in Paradise. We needed something characterful that was a bit different. You know, we wanted sort of a an animal sort of companion as a nod to the lizard in Death in Paradise. And the duck became um, a sort of running joke that ended up being in the, in the show. So there are little things like that that are obviously kind of homages and references to what we do. And then in the future, yes, absolutely, we could completely cross. We want to believe that these things all take place in the same world and that the potential is there for anyone to turn up in either of the shows and, you know, and, and for it to make total sense, not for the audience to go, whoa, hang on a minute. I struggle when you see Batman and Superman together. I don't agree with that personally. <laughs> I think that they exist in different worlds. So it always jars with me, even though I'm not a big comic book person at all. And I know that the hardcore fans would go, no, they're in the same world it doesn't make sense to me whereas with these shows i think it, it absolutely should make sense and if we wanted to put humphrey out in um in guadeloupe with these with this team then that would work and the longer the shows continue the more fun we might be able to have with with those kind of treats and i was going to ask you about i guess just more broadly the the, the franchisation to use an awful term of tv and and how we're seeing all these worlds kind of pop up and and spin-offs and and you know ever interconnected stories i mean what do you make of that just as a a broad trend in the industry because you know just from what um you know what alex was saying there it sounds like it's not just creative led it's it's also buyer led you know this you know death in paradise has been such a huge hit around the world and now people are saying we want more. Can you do yeah. us more? And, and this is perhaps the obvious way to, to do that without spoiling the original series. I mean, that was definitely a, a thing at the at the start. Like Alex said, the thought of just stretching. If someone said to us, can you make 30 episodes a year of Death in Paradise? You can't do that 
the way that we, you know, the way that we film it, it would just be impossible to kind of A, maintain the quality that we want to maintain and B, the enthusiasm and the passion for it if we were just sort of becoming that sort of production line. Whereas creating something new that can do different things, but that sits within that world was creatively really exciting and the potential, the opportunities within that are exciting. And I think that I'm all for the franchisation of the industry when those individual products are distinctive and doing something different. And it's when you're watching like tweaked versions of different things here, there and everywhere. And I'm not comparing our show to the Marvel universe at all um, because we're obviously (laughs) sitting in a different part of the forest, but those Marvel shows all had their own thing going on. And I really liked it. Um, I enjoyed watching a sort of darker version of this and a sort of more cartoonish version of that and feeling like there's this thing. I don't like it when I feel like I have to have watched everything. These shows should exist on, you know, in their own right. And then it's a treat if you know the bigger world more, if that makes sense, rather than, oh my God, I've no idea what's going on because I haven't watched the spin-off of the spin-off of the spin-off of the spin-off to understand it. But I think with the Death in Paradise thing, you know, there's no reason why we couldn't create other versions of, of this show that do different things, but all share that tone and that spirit. You know, it, it feels it feels totally possible uh, and fun to me. I think Beyond Paradise has proved that, hasn't it? You know, and I think that that that, that was very much a test for us. And, um, and I think we'll definitely be looking at ways to explore the paraverse. <laughs> <laughs> You got to find new uh, ideas of paradise, I guess, across the UK, maybe, or, or further afield yeah, to uh, exactly. set up base in. <laughs> where do you want to film next? You know, you found uh, where, <laughs> where, where's next? Well, Chris Marshall says he'll only. Sh- it's in his contract that he'll only shoot near a beach. That's uh, in every job from now on. Sanderton was a seaside show as well, so um, I might just make it that. There has to be. It has to be hot. Like we were blessed when we were filming down in Devon and um, and Cornwall. You know, we filmed all through the summer and there was literally a heat wave and day one of the shoot was insanely hot. And I remember Chris complaining that it was, I'm not complaining, he was sort of tongue in cheek, but he had his suit on for the first time in a long time. And he was like, this is unbelievable. And I was like, mate, you did five years in Guadeloupe. Like, surely you can cope with this. It was ludicrously hot. I mean, but I, I saw that as a good omen, you know, kind of needed to be. If you're making a Death in Paradise show, so surely that it needs to be um, unbearably hot in some way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and what's the future of that show? Have you had any news yet on on a potential second season? What what's next on that front? It's all looking very positive. Um, we 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 haven't had um any kind of formal nods yet, but we're hoping they will come. I think it's performed well on BritBox. It's performed well for the BBC. So um, you know, we're we're kind of hopeful that we will have the opportunity to do another series. But we, we until they say yes, it's uh, it it's it's not a yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and are you already planning further new stories and, and series in this world, or is that you know just to come and, and something you're you're thinking about but not yet moving on? We we are definitely exploring um, sort of ideas and opportunities, um, and I think that we are very cautious about how we do that. I think just because you can, it doesn't mean you should. Um, and so I think we. It's the Jurassic Park motto, isn't it? Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. They were so busy thinking about whether they could, they didn't stop to think about whether they should. So I I apply that to all aspects of my life now. Brilliant. (laughs) Great stuff. And what's next for you both and and for Red Planet? What what have you got coming up for the rest of the year? Well, we're filming Death in Paradise for a start. Um, That starts frighteningly um, soon. There's a huge amount of stuff on our development slate at various um, 
stages of closeness. Um, Sanditon Series 3 transmits very, very shortly in America and um, later this year in the UK. And um, so, yeah, we've been very, very busy. And, um, and, and if Beyond Paradise does go again, that starts up very soon too. We've already been developing scripts and stories, so we're kind of ready to go if and when we get the, uh, the tick. So, um, yeah, we're poised. Expanding European production and distribution company Asatcha Media Group comprises seven businesses to date. Carbo Family, Srab Films and Minty in France, Pico Media and Stand By Me in Italy, and Red Planet Pictures and Wag Entertainment in the UK. The group predominantly operates in the scripted space but produces unscripted content too and intends to increase its focus on the latter in line with growing demand for premium factual shows and documentaries. Asatcha Media Group Head of International Content and Co-Productions Maria Ishak and Caroline Skinner, Exec Producer at subsidiary Red Planet Pictures, plus Stefan Moati, Associate Producer at Sibling Carbo Family, spoke to Karolina Kaminska about their present programming strategies and the trends they see shaping the marketplace right now. Do you give equal focus to, to scripted un- and unscripted at Sasha Media Group? And is there a genre that's particularly in demand among buyers at the moment? So at the moment, I think just organically, we're about, our DNA is about 80% scripted, I'd say 10% factual and 10% cinematic theatrical films. And that's just the way that organically the company's grown and how uh, we've acquired the companies and their own DNA. We're looking to change that. I think we're looking to kind of put more emphasis and investment behind factual programming, for sure. I think the demand for factual is definitely growing, but there is definitely a big appetite for drama. And we feel that that's where most of platforms and channels revenues are kind of being invested in so it's just there's been an organic growth for me and and I'll, and I'll open it up for this one i think there's a lot of demand for the dramas those big premium dramas is always always in demand that said you know and it's pretty obvious that there is a growing demand appetite for premium docs those docuseries that are high-end that come in with something new fresh relevant that you know really bring a, a brand new angle to a story that's been told so that's something that we see that there is demand of but drama is always in demand and i think people always watch it and i think broadcasters always sort of my particular point of view but i'd love to see what stefan and caroline think about this but my view is that their investment really is focused on the drama slate and making sure that they've got good prime time dramas to offer to their audience and subscribers but guys let me know what you think if you agree uh, yeah i can tell you uh words regarding the french market Cabo Group grew up uh, with a strong DNA uh, in comedy. Uh, we, we produce a shortcom and a daily uh, shortcom for M6 and the Menesh, couple clashes. And, and there is, with, with the arrival of the platform, there is uh, a demand focus on specifically on comedy. Uh, that's uh, what is really wanted. And uh, you, you have to be aware also that maybe 50% of the local commission are still a cop show. So that's uh, really a large uh, a large uh, space taken by, by the cop show and more and more uh, you get also a demand uh, towards mini series what we call genre that could be either thriller that could be a, t- a touch of fantasy uh, and that's more and more uh, also part of the demand and I think in, in our market obviously um, we're a scripted company so of course I'm going to agree that um, scripted is the place to be um, but I think the it's a really interesting time in the UK space and we've got you know a lot of platforms in the market at the moment which means that everybody can think incredibly ambitiously about the range of shows that they're developing um and it feels as if 
just a really strong time where broadcasters are saying, A, surprise me, but also really looking out for huge characterful ideas. And I think, you know, as, as um, speaking for the audience as much as for the programme makers, I think that drama works at its best when you're inviting really big characters into your living room for hours on end. So that feels like a really refreshing and exciting time. With drama, how is the landscape for the for the genre changing and evolving compared to, I don't know, a couple of years ago? I mean, I can start just in terms of the lay of the land. I, you know, we've got two producers on you know, with Red Planet and Cabob. On my end, when I speak to, when I sort of look at the market, and speak to buyers and what they're looking at, how they're changing. I think to Caroline's point, I hear a lot about character-led, really good, strong characters. Jean is always important, you know, whether they want something uplifting now because it's been so kind of somber the last, the new cycle is so dark. So people really want lifting shows, a bit more lighthearted. I feel that dark, that sort of Scandi dark noir isn't so much sort of been overdone and used. My gut is that a great story is a great story. I think strong storytelling and fantastic writing will always cut through. So if you have a really strong writer, strong talent attached, anything that's marketable, they really, really want. And whereas I think in the past, it's been a bit more fluid, you know, not so talent led. And now you really want these strong characters, fantastic top-notch writing you can't be mediocre anymore you really have to kind of aim for the for the best and that for me on the biggest scale when I sort of speak generally and look at the our, our group I feel that that's what we're really focusing on we're focusing on these big talents we're focusing on big IP we're looking at things that can sort of travel well and then can cut through the clutter but can really appeal on a global scale and I feel that's what's changed whereas before you could sort of really specifically sort of sell a smaller show now you have to have a big show to really sort of put in front of the buyers and and to get that attention it really is a fight for attention there's so much out there and now can you talk about your strategy with regards to the international co-productions and the and talent partnerships um but before we get on to the internal relationships looking at the the external relationships Definitely. I mean, Sasha's bread and butter really is to kind of produce for the global market and to open doors uh, for our companies internally, but really to kind of link all the different strong storytellers together. Our strategy is simple, really to work with the best co-producers, best talent, you know, and looking at the project that makes most sense for us. We want to make sure we add value to every project that we take on board, that we can really use our sources, our resources, our contacts, leverage our internal production companies with the external ones as well. Uh, there are a couple of external copros that we're working on that unfortunately we can't announce yet, but I know that Cabo is part of one. We're looking at uh, some mothers that we're, lo- you know, we're, we're piecing the, the puzzle together. So it's having us, another partner, potentially a distributor all coming in. So the strategy behind is really focusing on finding strong partners, finding the best storytellers and making sure we can add value to that proposition, uh, no matter what it might be. There's a lot of content out there. So we also are looking through that, deciphering through it and ensuring that you know, our companies can work on the project and we we get the best out of the show itself. And if Stefan and Caroline, you guys want to add to that? I mean, I think for us in the UK, obviously, Red Planet has always really been ambitious about telling big, mainstream, unashamedly popular stories that people really want to watch and the audiences take to their hearts. And, and you know, our kind of our biggest shows of Sanderton and Death in Paradise, um, I think, really have spoken to that for a while. Obviously, Death in Paradise sells in 240 plus territories, which um you know, is it may it is just hugely global for for BBC Studios. 
I think it's one of their biggest selling shows. Um, and so, you know, it's something that we've always really looked at because I think that, you know, television is definitely, it's a global industry and the types of stories that travel do feel epic and huge, whether they're set abroad or whether they're stories that feel as if they're talking about universal things that that actually are in a very local context. Um I think the for us it's been really interesting the past couple of years as we've been working with Asasha. It's it's allowed us real ambition and as, as Maria is talking about what it's like at, at central office, but I think that you know um it, it is a family of companies who work really closely and, and talk a lot amongst ourselves. And I think that it's allowed us to think outside the box and be very dynamic with our own slate. But also I think that as a group of companies, it feels very bespoke because it's still quite a young group. Um, it feels very boutique. And the talent that we are working with at the moment, you know, really have access to talk to the different producers in our sister companies, but also to, at a very high level, um, everybody knows Marina and Gaspar in head office. And I think that we've got a very direct relationship both with them, but also to have conversations with their contacts and with talent that they know across Europe, which has been hugely kind of interesting and beneficial to us as a company, because there's just such a huge cross-fertilization of ideas. And like I say, I kind of... I think that anyone who works in television knows that it really is an industry that's all about the people that you work with. It's certainly kind of, it's not an industry that you're going to work on in isolation. And I think that all projects when you get into production are massively about the alchemy of the both the talent and the team that's been put together. So it's been really freeing for us to just be able to work in slightly different areas and work with and in conjunction with different territories and other producers' expertise. And regarding the way we work at Kabul, uh, I I think our, our challenge is to uh, attract the, also the best talent as anyone, and also to give the opportunity for the for the internal producer to grow and find uh, their own DNA. Uh, for instance, uh, we have, we have producer we grew up with the DNA of comedy, and that talent is really to to detect the the, the right writers to be able to 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 build a strong relationship with the comedians. Uh, we have also other producers, for instance. Uh, a young producer, she's more into the, the strategy of niche. Uh, she produced for uh, Slash, which is the digital uh, drama of France Television. And now she just she's, she's about to finish a, a, a show for Amazon. So I think uh, there's there's one thing I, I wanted to add because regarding your question, I think regarding the evolution also of the of the genre, I think there is a that we notice after COVID uh, that I think all commissioners they, they want. Uh, what they call uh, light or entertaining shows. Uh, as Maria said, I think it's the end of the dark uh, Nordic shows and, and we have to think of uh, putting a, a, a fun touch, uh, entertaining uh, way, uh, way of telling stories and also in France we call it like characters they come from what we call the invisible, you know, the, the characters that usually you don't you don't show them and, and of course they are, they are more um, fun characters more and more, we have to 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 deal with this uh, this this step up and uh, entertaining shows. Just um, to add to that, and, and going back to the international co-production strategy externally, you know, wanted to sort of mention that we look at a lot of projects, especially in the centre. And you know, the three things we always look for are when we have brought some external projects to, to to review and to potentially invest in and work on. You know, we obviously look for talent, reputation, and relationships of those projects. So 
producers that come to on board. But the key thing for us really uh, is also, is there a co-production with France, the UK, Italy, where we have offices and, and production companies that we've acquired? That's always a first go-to. Um, and obviously we're expanding around Europe on, on a more strategic M&A level. But we look internally and go, where can we place this? And that's where the added value comes in, of course. But for me, that the things we look for is the talent, reputation and, and the relationships those producers have that we can sort of add on to. Honing in then on, on the internal relationships, how do you encourage your internal companies to, to work together? We're still relatively you know, medium size. We've acquired seven companies to date, three in France, two in the UK and two in Italy. We have a partnership in Germany and we're looking at the Middle East. We find the Middle East is a growth area. But you know, within our, our group, we communicate and we encourage, well, I think on a sort of very superficial level, we have annual seminars where everyone gets together and everyone meets. Uh, that's a very important part. It's a very creative thinking. We try and do We'll try and do this twice a year, but I think face-to-face get-togethers are really still key, especially after COVID. So that's one thing we've put in place on an annual basis. And then everybody, and Cabo, I mean, Define can speak to this a bit more, and Caroline, because they're in it. But on a sort of board level, all the CEOs of every company are also invested in the Sasha. So they meet on a regular level, they want to talk to each other. Everyone has the same vision to help grow the company and has the same vision and are, are invested in the Sasha's sort of future. So they like and they want to discuss potential opportunities. And they're all there from the beginning, knowing that they can leverage each other's relationships, each other's contacts. From the get-go, we're very open and very, we make a point to, for everyone to know that they should communicate and speak to each other, email each other. So we're very open to that. I've come from a background of working in big corporations where there are a lot of companies and you don't see a lot of internal communication. I think that's something unique about a Sasha that we really encourage, whether it's via phone calls, meetups, and whatever it might be, to speak to each other, to communicate. And when something comes centrally or my way and I feel there's a connection with another company, I will definitely sort of advise and encourage they speak to this company or that company, whichever it might be. So there are elements of internal comms that we do. There are sort of sudden just pick up the phone. Uh, and like I said, we're, so, we're still quite medium sized. So everyone does know each other. It's not too overwhelming at the moment. So they can easily communicate and we definitely do do get those introductions done and, and try and sort of arrange company get-togethers when we can. But I'd like to hear internally how they think it's it's being managed as well. Yeah, uh, well, I agree with what you said. No, for Cabo, actually, um, joining Sasha was a, a major uh, opportunity to expand our uh, playground. We were strong in our local market. It was really difficult for us to go into the, the game of international uh, co-production, I would say. And uh, this is a big booster for us. Uh, I think there is, a, as you said, there's no verticality in Asasha. It's really human uh, human relationship. And also what I, what I enjoy is that um, usually the manager in, uh, from all the production company, they, they both have the, this culture of both business and artistic. And uh, and, and I think that's also uh, uh, that's a big uh, strength also, I think, uh, within the group. And as uh, as it remains uh, a, a small boutique group, it's really easy when you have an idea just to, to, to make a phone call to say, what would you think this? Would, would uh, an input from UK or Italy would be something that you would consider? And, and also opportunity coming from the central unit uh, because the, that's part of the, the job and uh, providing us with proposal of uh, talent that want to work with us of IP but I think it's uh, it's done the right way to give the, the resource for, for organic growth and uh, we've we've always uh, I would say uh, a, a human day-to-day uh, relationship 
I mean, I, I I kind of second that from our point of view. I think that without repeating everything that Maria and Stefan have said, it, it feels as if it's a very collaborative and organic environment to work in, um, particularly because it isn't the most enormous corporate structure at the moment. And I think that that gives a real flexibility and kind of fluidity to our working processes. So you're not necessarily thinking when you phone up one of your colleagues about a specific co-production or something that's incredibly well-formed, but it feels as if there's a, a real dialogue that's going on between the different companies. So for instance, we have a brilliant books executive, um, Michelle Francis, who works with a team of book scouts and will constantly keep an eye out for IP that might not work for us in the English language market, but might actually perhaps be written in English, but be a brilliant story for Italy or for one of the other territories. And I think, I I, I feel that the companies um, all have really individual personalities and you know really, really impressive output that there's a lot of mutual respect there. So as you're developing a show, you are sort of thinking if it is an internationally based show and, and you'd like to co-produce, you're, you're, it's very clear which of the different executive producers it would really appeal to because everybody is encouraged to have their own bespoke taste. And so it sort of, it, it very much feels as if it always comes back to the idea and the talent combination and then the company kind of working organically together to add as much value to our propositions as we possibly can. Can you give some examples of, of some of the talent deals um, that Sasha has signed or some of the, the shows that have come about as a result of co-productions? Um, as I told you, the, the DNA of Cabo is really short comedy. So now we, we've been producing a daily show for MCs called uh, Couple Clashes, uh, which is a, a big success for more than uh, 13 years. Uh, we uh, also in production of a show called Killer Coaster for uh, Amazon. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a comedy with, uh, three, uh, big actresses of comedy in France. Uh, Alex, Audrey Lamy, Alexandra Lamy, who are actually uh, sisters, and one of the daughters, Chloe Jouanet. Uh, that's a show that is in post-production now. And also, I, w- I would like to maybe to say a word about, uh, a strategic deal we, we just secure with Christian Duguet. Um, Christian is a well-known uh, writer and director of both uh, TV series and, and feature films. He's a Canadian uh, based uh, in Paris and we just uh, made the deal to develop um, some high-end drama uh, TV series um and, and to co- to co-develop and 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 co-produce together and what is interesting is among one of these show there was one uh, show actually one idea one IP that was uh developed by Picomedia and and to give you uh, an example about how it works um, to a day-to-day uh basis I was uh, we were discussing with uh, Picomedia for a while uh, on the right way of uh, starting the development of the show and and we discuss it with with Christian Duguay and it's very interesting and it's going to be the showrunner of the show and 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 to be the lead uh on on, on the show um so um w- w- once we have the the relationship with the talent we can give him lots of opportunity not only uh, in France but also in other territories in, in Europe and for 
from from our point of view, um, in terms of co-productions, I am working on probably, which I think was the first Asasha co-production between two of our companies that we've been developing between um, ourselves at Red Planet and um, with one of Stefan's colleagues, Arno Figure at Cabo Family. Um, and the, the show is called The Exphoria Code. It's based on a book which we fell in love with at Red Planet um, and optioned. Um, it's a spy thriller um, written by the New York Times bestselling novelist um, Anthony Johnson, who is really amazing at coming up with high-octane high octane thrillers. He wrote the graphic novel that the Charlize Theron movie Atomic Blonde was based on. And this is, it's a really sort of organic opportunity for a co-production because it's about a young female MI6 hacker called Bridget Sharp, who has a French mother and an English father. Um, and she's drawn into a conspiracy thriller after her best friend is murdered, which leads her on a mole hunt in a drone project in northern France. So it has all of the high octane action adventure that you could want. But why we loved it was because the central character, as I was saying, is is half French and half British and has an incredibly complex and nuanced family life, um, which coexists in a sort of ordinary person and extraordinary circumstances kind of a way alongside her incredible job. Um, and so we fell in love with the idea of the character. Um, and once we'd optioned the book, um, also shared it with our friends at Cabo, um, and Arno equally fell in love with the central character um, and just the potential for really kind of making an iconic part that hopefully will you know live on for several series. And I think that what's made the journey work so so well at the moment is it, it comes back as it always does to ideas and to shared vision um, and I think that we've both got really big ambitions for how it could play out in both markets and we're working with the brilliant um, British scriptwriter Christopher Dunlop at the moment who's worked in the genre space extensively um, but what we want is for it to feel authentic and original and truthful and, and bilingual and it's just been a very kind of joyful and kind of fruitful process process so far, um, both maximising everybody's taste in terms of making the script development as strong as it possibly can be, but also it's been really great to hear kind of nuanced insights into the French market, which of course one feels like you understand a little bit, but no one ever understands somebody else's market from the inside. So we're just really excited about where we're going to take that project in the coming months. Okay. Yeah, and just to quickly add to that, I think, you know, essentially sitting uh, within within the central team, we have a development fund where we support each production company's sort of uh, desire to invest in strong IP or storytelling or talent. Uh, so we really sort of encourage that as well. And there are a couple of writers that Red Planet are working with that we're going to announce soon. We've got some of their books on a longer sort of term basis. And Stefan, who speaks Italian, I think works quite closely with our Italian companies. So he's got a couple of co-productions with Pico Media and one potentially with Stand By Me, our Italian, our Italian companies there. So there is the language barriers as well. I mean, I think we, the, the aim here as well is to not have what everyone co calls a Euro pudding. We don't want to just make shows you know, European just for the sake of it. I think the story has to organically tell it like it is and, and for it to feel authentic. But again, you know, essentially we look for these big writers, we look for these big showrunners. And one thing to add that we're working with a couple of US showrunners that have come our way just given what's happening in the US and the chaotic sort of state that the market is in, we're hoping to work with uh, one or two American writers who have done some big shows for, for the US market and to, to come that way. So there's a few, a lot of deals that are bubbling um, in that space as well. 
obviously you've got a few a few things in the works. What are the company's core plans for the rest of this year and beyond? Well, for our century, and again, so we've got you know my my objectives, my core plans. What I you know what, and I say I, it's really us as a team, a Sasha century, helping supporting our, our production companies. But it, it's more of the same, really. It's more of being a support for the production companies. The you know we're hoping to grow for one on a top level in terms of acquisitions and M and A. So that's one thing apart in the sort of central team we're looking to get more talent-led ip we're looking to really bolster our development slate and eventually get more commissions on board for us and like stefan had mentioned you know each company is fantastic locally i think they, they do so well within their own regions my aim is to really lift that up and, and open those doors get them on more s files get them more global commissions and really sort of level up level them up on the international scale and that's via bigger ip more talent that shows further investment in their development slate and attending markets. I think really going to conferences, you know, seeing people face to face, building relationships and making sure that we also do that for our producers. So a lot of what we do is opening those doors and creating those relationships for them at the markets, at doing some pitch calls like Zoom, whatever it might be, but really supporting them in any way we can. So it's that's going to be one of our big focus at the center is making sure that we sort of up the scale and get them more sort of international commissions however possible. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's it's a really big year for us at the moment. And obviously, in terms of our core business, we're just about to embark on Series 13 of Death in Paradise in the Caribbean. Um, and we're all delighted by how the audience um, and the audience figures have taken its sister series, Beyond Paradise, to heart. And I think that for the development team, as we've been discussing, we've really put a lot of resources and time into developing some of these more global and European projects that Maria's been talking about and particularly investing in some big IP. So we're, we're working in shows that hopefully feel a little bit unexpected for, for Red Planet. We're working with um, shows that are set across Europe. Um, we've got a series that is set in LATAM. We're working with um, some Americans and we've got a big Canadian series that um, has been script commissioned in Canada, which is based on um, a big series of novels that we're very delighted by at the moment. We've got a series called Dark Pines, which is based on some enormously popular crime thriller books that the novelist Will Dean has written. Um, and they centre around a young female deaf millennial journalist called Tuva Moodison, um, who relocates back to her childhood home in a tiny village in remote Sweden, only to find that a serial killer is on the loose in her village and the biggest story of her career is possibly about to break and we're developing those with Charlotte Jones, the screenwriter at the moment, and we're hugely excited by their potential as a really mainstream series and also a series that for our industry could say some very interesting things about deafness and disability, both on screen and also in the way in which we're looking at it in 360 degrees, because I think that those conversations about shaping the industry and, and, and conversations about providing talent opportunities across the board are so hugely important to us as both of us as a company and as a group so yeah so we're really looking forward to seeing what some of those projects that we've invested a huge amount of time and effort into over the past year or so are going to look like as we start to go out with them uh, regarding Kabul I think the the challenge of the year is first uh, consolidating our DNA in, in comedy uh, we're working at the moment with uh, for a sitcom for France Television we just uh, finished the shooting of a new series called uh, 
unworthy mother, which is a, a 10 half an hour episode series, new show. There's going to be uh, released for, for on Slash on Digital France Television this year. Uh, there is also a new short com that we produce that is going to be uh, broadcast by M6 this year. So that's for the, the, the core business that we want to conciliate. And then, uh, well, we want to, to, to try to launch our new development and, and finance our new development regarding, uh, uh, I would say, more high end drama. We have uh, a series, uh, iced series called The Hustle uh, that is in discussion with a French partner and uh, will be co produced by Stand By Me in Italy. And we just uh, co produced as well uh, La Storia with Pico Media, which is an eight hour uh, mini series based on the, the bestseller from Elsa Morante that is going to be. Uh, Uh, the event uh, probably of, uh, of the year uh, in Italy and hopefully in Europe. It's distributed uh, by uh, by Beta, and it's a bit uh, early, but soon we will probably announce uh, uh, a European co-production with an international distributor that is a very cool um, spy drama. <laughs> but uh, it's a bit too soon to to tell you more. Sophie Loren is a French-Canadian actress, director and producer known for roles in TV series including Fortier for Quebec's TVA network and directing movies such as Heatwave and Slut in a Good Way. She's married to director and cinematographer Alexis Durand-Bro, whose credits include The Heart That Dies Last, The Little Queen and episodes of the TV series La Galère and Orsacur de Beatrice. Together, the couple run Also Productions, which is behind two shows screened at Series Mania in Lille. One called Disobey is a true story about a woman's struggles against abortion laws for Bell Media streamer Crave. And the other is another real-life drama called Megantic, about a 2013 US railroad oil spill tragedy, which debuted recently on Videotron's Club Illico. They spoke to Michael Pickard. My name is Sophie Lorrain and I'm the uh, president and the uh, partner of uh, my dear friend Alexis here and producer of also productions. So yo, my name is Alexis Durambois and I'm a producer obviously, I'm also a director and I work with my lovely uh, partner here <laughs> uh, trying to create uh, new things, new stuff, new ideas, uh, new... Uh, way of thinking and we we have uh, we have a straight line that we want to produce quality 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 that's our main uh, line even though we, we we work with smaller budgets because obviously we're from quebec and we do have very much smaller budgets that what people are used to So that's why we insist on working on quality. So we choose our projects very carefully in order to be able to do that. And, we, and since we're both directors, I'm an actor and Alexis is also a DOP. Um, that's, we, you know, we manage to get our paycheck that way, but we go all, all in in most of our productions yeah. as far as production and money uh, is concerned. And we try to push the... Uh, envelope, yeah. Yeah, the envelope with the streamer and the... Uh, so we ask... Uh, We try to, to, you know, to bring up the budget and we try to get more money to, to execute our project. I mean, how, how do you measure quality? I mean, it's obviously, it's okay saying we want quality shows, yeah. but I imagine everyone wants quality. How do of you course. measure that for also productions? Well, the storyline is one thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, we choose our projects very carefully. 
and we do manage them very tightly with the um, um, streamers or the broadcasters and, and our teams as well. But quality for us, it's innovation. Did we bring something new? Did we bring something that never, never been seen that way? Never been done, done. that way? Or uh, this is like for Desobey, for example, this is a story from us. Uh, I mean, from us, for us. I mean, it's a Quebec, uh, it's a Quebec uh, story. And I think the idea is to try to bring something local, global, if I can say. So that's the main thing. So quality for us, it's not just a question of money. It's a question of innovation and trying to push the envelope, invent something else, bring something else to the audience. We won't ever do like, uh, as we say in English, quotidien, uh, a soul for tea. So we never go, because it's a lot of work first, and this is not our cup of tea. So we try to, I, I think the cinema now is coming towards TV and big time. And I think it's fantastic because you can reach people. And if you can reach people, um, I, th I think we, we need to we need to be able to bring some new stuff, really. Otherwise, uh, the industry is, gonna, is not yeah. going to survive, particularly not in, in our side of the country. But also, is that we're creators to start with. You know, like I said, I'm an actor. Alexis is a DOP and a director. I'm also a director, so we see things a little differently. As producers, our our quest for content. Um, to put on the air is really much or oriented uh, by what we are to start with. So in that way, we work a bit differently than other producers. We're just not doing packages and things like that. It's not a cup of tea. We really try to find the or you know project, even you know even if they're a bit different, but out of the we, box, out yeah. of the box that resembles us in order to make it universal, basically. That's what we're trying to do. I know that you're hearing from every company, we want to do things differently and blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, it's the only way for us to take something that we can feel, you know, in our own world to make it global. That's the only yeah. difference. I mean, and just talking about your creative roles, you know, on screen, behind the yeah. camera, I mean, how, how have all those scripts you've read through your careers shaped the way then that you work as producers. How has that experience helped you now as you're, now you're running the company? Well, I'm a Shakespearean trained actress, so I can read scripts. Uh, I've, you know, I've read uh, Moliere and uh, Chekhov and, and, you know, when you, when you read these, <laughs> these theater plays, which are extremely difficult sometimes, you know, to, to decide, to, 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 to make um, truthful, on stage and to you know to pick up all the subtleties of the text well it helps you out and when you direct as well it does help you out and when you work on other other productions it helps you it helps you out so the thing is uh, Alexis is very very talented as well so I think we try with the experience that we've had in the past you know to to put aside what we don't want and to concentrate only on content that's what we do that's our you know that's our strength really uh, administration is not our strength um, banking is not our strength legal the legal part of the business is not our strength 
but this is the real know-how that we have. You know? Yeah, and you have other people to do the, those other well, bits. Obviously, <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here, believe me. Um, and so we're sitting here at, at Series Mania, where the show you mentioned, Disobey, is, is part of the international selection and being screened here. I mean, just introduce us to the story, because you mentioned that's a, a very Quebecois story. Yeah. I mean, just tell us a bit about what it's about. Well, it's a true story that happened in 1999 about this uh, very uh, ordinary couple, 21-year-old little girl, well, little girl, very naive, coming from outside of Montreal and her, her boyfriend. And they fell in love. He was 25. They fell in love. And about six or seven months, she realized that, you know, this love was all based on wrong, wrong things. Uh, he was very um, aggressive, manipula manipulative, and um, he started isolating her, and then she fell pregnant, and um, she realized too late, you know, the implication of, what, of, of what, what had just happened, and she wanted to get an abortion, and he didn't. So, uh, in f for some strange reason, he managed to know some people who were, um, I don't know how you say POV in English, um, against abortion anyways, uh, associations that helped him out and that gave him money and lawyers and good lawyers to surround him with. And he went to court and managed to get an arrest uh, on for her. So she couldn't get this abortion and she had to fight. And what we thought at the time was only, um, you know, a couple getting, you know, washing their dirty clothes <laughs> in front of the public wasn't because uh, the first judge who gave the injunction, who lifted the injunction at the Superior Court, um, managed to say that, you know, uh, yes, of course, uh, she couldn't get an abortion after all because the baby, the fetus, was more important than the woman's body. And uh, that's when the population just went, oh, wait a minute. And she fought, she fought all the way through, and she had to go to the Supreme Court to get the, her case so, uh, resolved still. She was pregnant, and you know the baby was ticking, ticking inside her womb, and she finally got this abortion, uh, even though she could get arrested, be put in jail for two years, and uh, be um, get um, uh, a fine of uh, fifty thousand dollars. So she finally got her abortion in the states illegally with the help of some uh, uh, um, uh, women who gave her a, a bit of a, um, help to get there and to get to the clinic. And when she came back to the Supreme Court, um, she got found out, and the, the 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 whole thing got stopped for a moment. But the Supreme Court decided to go ahead with the case and to solve it. And finally, she was uh, she was found innocent of everything. But the thing is, up to this day, you know, this little woman, if we can get an abortion freely and securely in Canada. Is partially because of her, because one year before her whole story, the um, there was a, an, a, uh, a the abortion was um, how do you say in English um, decriminalisé. You you could get an abortion decriminalised. Yeah. Sorry, I was I was looking for the word. So she, for a moment, she was the only woman in Canada who couldn't get an abortion. You know, and she was waiting for these gentlemen to chat. You know, among themselves. You know, to decide whether the fetus had a personality or not, which was absolutely absurd. So finally she did get this abortion and um, she went back to a secret life, got married years later and that was the end of it for her. 
Wow. Again, uh, today in Canada, we don't have any law yeah. about abortion. It's still based on that case. Mm -hmm. So, and is that something? Is it a very well-known case, or yes. was that part of your interest in telling the story? Well, it was. It, was. it got lost in oblivion, mm -hmm. and when it finally fell on our desk in 2018, I think 2019. I went, you gotta tell this story because most of the women, young women these days don't know why, you know, how come they, they can go around so, so freely. And also, you know, Trump had just gotten into um, uh, election, uh, elected, and I could see, I could smell that Roe versus Wade was gonna fall off, you know, or at least something was gonna happen. And it has, obviously. So we thought, you know, it is very, important for this story to come back you know on on the air and to be to have the weight that yeah. it should have you know yeah. and to recognize this woman who is a hero from the ordinary day-to-day -day world world you know she 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 just came to do this and then went back to her life you know yeah and then so was this a story that you identified and, and then found the writers, or did the writers come to you and no, say, we want to do writers. this? We, we found the writers. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Exactly. yeah. But it, it, you know, what I love about the story, first of all, it's, I don't want to sound that bizarre, but it's a very click, click, click story, because obviously she's pregnant. It's a time-clicking story. Yeah. Which, and, and secondly, uh, this is so big to be true. I mean, Aga and a judge could really say no, sorry, you don't have the right to choose for yourself. I mean, it, and make me realize that for real, it's, it's so uh, fragile, it's so fragile. In a twist, in a, in a blink of eye, this right could fall really easy for the woman. And we, you know, we can talk about the US where now it's getting very harder and harder yeah. and harder, but we can talk here, Polish or uh, we don't even talk about uh, Italy also, and we don't even talk about the Moyen Ariana, the uh, the uh, Arabic people. So, so I think it's very fragile, very very fragile. Mm -hmm. And if we don't take care of it, it might twist. And, and so, in terms of you know wanting to tell stories that are sort of told in a new, innovative way, how have you applied that to this story that could be quite a dry kind of court? Drama. Well, it's fun because the the angle that was chosen by us and the writers was that we, we first we had to install what you know the, a, a bit of that relationship between that 21 year old woman and her 25 year old boyfriend, uh, because we wanted to make sure that people understood Chantal, who's the name character uh, of the main character, the name of the name name of the main character. We wanted uh, for people to understand that she was not um, just a naive and stupid girl, you know, who fell out of wedlock. We wanted to show that, you know, this guy was charming, that she fell in love with him, that he was fun to be with, intelligent, and he was like a prince charming, you know, and things got out of hand little by little, but things were a little subtle. So the audience is, uh, who was watching the show is having, is one step ahead, if you want than Chantal and they can feel it coming as she's discovering it all, you know, one step behind. So that the way the story evolves is that we were working on two time zones, you know, um, six months, seven months before and after. And, and as she's going through her quest for this abortion, she is reminded every now and then of her past with him and how she she was in love and how naive she was and how she did see it coming 
and we can, you know, we, we can feel that things are going to get out of hand. And also, what's fun is that at one point, there were some, um, um, uh, a group of women who were working very hard in Montreal in order to get um, the um, abortion law, the abortion uh, decriminalized. And they managed that a year before. And so when they heard about the story of Chantal, and these women were not, you know, um, uh, coming out of a box of uh, Cracker Jacks. They were lawyers, um, nurses, um, uh, social workers. And when they heard about the case of Chantal, they wanted to help her out. But she was so frightened, and her lawyer was frightened that these women would be taken like, by the judge for, like, lesbian uh, uh, bitches. And he said, you know, they're not going to help you out. It's just going to make matters worse. Let me defend you and do what I can do, but keep them out of this dossier. And um, at one point, Chantal was so overwhelmed by the whole situation, and she could see it coming. She had lost the uh, Superior Court. She had lost her appeal. And she said to herself, I need this these women, because otherwise I'm not going to make it. And she could see herself, she could project herself going to the Supreme Court and losing again, which she could deal with. What she couldn't deal with was to have that baby. So these women did a huge campaign to pick to, to get some money. They took her, they changed her appearance, uh, they, she, they disguised her as a punk, and they traveled across the border. They went to the United States. They went to Boston. They organized the, the whole thing so she could get aborted there and drove her back in time in Quebec to go to this, uh, in, in Ottawa to go to the Supreme Court. All these women risked prison as well, you know? So the solidarity, all that aspect of the, um, also of, of the storyline is in there. And it's really powerful because at the same time, there's the movement of the anti-abortions who are doing, pulling the ropes behind, paying the lawyers of Jean-Guy, you know, making sure that, you know, their publicity and their agenda is going forward. So it gets to be very thrilling as far as storytelling is concerned, and that's up front. So as, as, as you're going along watching the episodes, they're opening up and opening up and opening up, and then the story is getting, you know, wider and... and and more interesting as you're going as you're going on towards the end, you know. Mm -hmm. So it becomes like a thriller. Yeah. It's, it's surprisingly, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. And and I guess then Alexis, on a, on a visual level, you know, directing the series, how did you want to, you know, recreate the period or, or make it, you know, lift it from the, the stuffy courtrooms? The uh, the key for me was to <clears throat> put the camera in the middle of that. So. If you watch the show, the camera is always in the middle of the action mm -hmm. and people turn around the camera and the camera is trying to follow them, but we never outside the story. I'm putting my Steadicam or my camera right in the middle, even in the court, so my camera will move from one to the other one, go back. So the viewer can, I'm, I'm trying, uh, I'm very humble about that, but I'm trying to uh, make, uh, make the viewer feel the thing like Chantal uh, as, as uh, felt, it, felt, it, uh, felt it before. So I, I really love the, the, the feeling that if I'm sitting right in the middle of the sequence, a viewer will sit with me in the middle of the sequence and what could happen around them, it, they're going to receive the same 
uh, the same emotion and the same uh, drive from uh, Chantal. We need to be able to, Chantal is the main character, Chantal, to be the uh, same point of view of the viewer so we can understand exactly the story and exactly the emotion that occurs. So, so basically, if you watch the entire show, uh, I don't use that much montage, I, I'm not cutting too much, and I'm always, my camera is always, always, always in the middle, never outside. I'm not, I'm not a, a witness of my camera, it's part of the story, she's moving inside the story and pointing sometimes for something that I want to say, okay, look at that viewer, that's, that's the important stuff on the, uh, in the scene. So, humbly, I think that it creates a relation between the storyline and the viewer can, because it can like, be really immersed on the, on the show. Fantastic. And, and so what else have you got coming up on your slate? You have another show, Megantic? Yeah, we have Megantic, who's going to be uh, uh, up to date uh, in the um, section uh, next from Quebec. Yeah. Uh, Megantic is quite, it's a huge story and it's a huge show because um, Megantic is a small city in the heart of Quebec where a, train, a tragedy happened about 10 years ago when a train ran into the uh, heart of the downtown of the city at one o'clock in the morning and it was pulling 72 wagons filled with crude oil and it exploded right in the middle of the city. Um, uh, it killed instantly 47 people and it injured many, many others. And um, uh, that tra the, the images of that tragedy were shown all over the, the world and they were used sometimes by uh, some um, some uh, uh, production company to illustrate um, um, tragedies and things like that. But uh, we, at one point, were asked to do a show about that, and but we weren't too hot about it because we thought it would be, you know, a bit overwhelming and a bit, um, how do you say, um, not cheesy. really tasty and cheesy. Mm. But um, someone convinced us to go and meet uh, with the, some of the survivors in the Megantic, so we went there and some people of that population felt it was time to express what they had felt because we only saw, you know, the huge explosions through our television mm -hmm. and through the media. Uh, but there were people underneath living, you know, very ordinary lives. So we heard what they had to say and the statements the <laughs> were so powerful. The stories were so powerful that we decided to write an eight chapter, eight chapters of, of uh, one hour stories on each other people we met, and uh, we told the story of Megan Six. So the story takes place like for sometimes 48 hours before the explosion and, and afterwards, and it's really a very impressive show. Yeah, yeah. great. It's a huge hit. Uh, it's a huge hit right Canada. now in. in yeah. I mean, obviously, Disobey and Megantic both based on real stories. I mean, yeah. what, what, yeah. what, and it's, you know, it's such a popular trend now around yeah. the world, these true stories, yeah. true crime, obviously, yeah. especially. I mean, is there a key to unlocking these series for you that you found, or is it? No, it, that's, no. that's, we weren't, you know, Megantic, we weren't searching for it. Megantic came to us, you know, and so did Chantal Daigle at some point, yeah. Disobey as well. Um, they just felt, but when we saw them, we saw, you know, what interests me the most is is the uh, the the human factor. What what is what is the human what what does the human feel and and goes through, you know? And for me, Chantal Deck was unbelievable that a 21 little you know little girl 
could hold up, you know, to all these judges, you know. She was surrounded by men, you know, and she had to go, her lawyer was a man, her husband, well, not her husband, but boyfriend, the lawyers of her boyfriend, the judges, the Supreme Court of Canada. I mean, how do you hold on to that, you know, when you come from Shibugamu? It's, it's unbelievable that she managed, you know. That's what interested us. People from Megantic is what they had to say and what they had gone through. It's, of course, it is spectacular, but underneath the spectacular, there are some beautiful, really beautiful, gorgeous stories, and that's what interests us. So, if, had, if that hadn't been, you know, because yeah. we didn't invent them, they were there, you know, yeah, yeah. we wouldn't have yeah, touched you know, it's, it's kind of bizarre because we, we follow our, our little voice and for the next thing we work on it now, it's the uh, amazing story with uh, Omar Gaddafi and uh, oh my god, how can I explain that story, it's so complicated, but uh, we move on a, a very cool story uh, about a man who was working for a huge, huge uh, engineering, engineering company in Canada and he was desperate and because things didn't work well and blah 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 and he made a deal with the son of Omar Khadafi for building some very huge infrastructure over there in Syria and I read a book about that uh, maybe uh, two years ago and this is bigger than life this is <laughs> almost ridiculous and very very funny and but it's it's so yeah. we work on that story for now, uh, and I think it could be a very, uh, very interesting show. Uh, it almost brought the government of Canada on its knees. You yeah. know? Has that been commissioned, or is that just something you're developing? That's something we're developing okay. at the moment, Actually. because uh, the series is going to take place uh, in North America, and in Europe, and also in, in Arabic countries. Yeah, yeah. So we have to uh, package yeah. it very carefully yeah. to make it happen because we want it. We yeah. really want to do it. Yeah, and, and series from Quebec, like Portrait Robot, which we discussed, yeah. uh, you know, was yours a few years ago. I mean, Quebec drama is, is really sort of playing out internationally as we're seeing it. Series yeah, Mania. Sell 20, how we, how 20, we use 29 countries. Yeah. We sell Portrait Robot, so it's yeah. kind of and right now we're shooting the third season. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how are you? How are you finding the Quebec art industry and, and the interest in what you're doing? Is there are there more opportunities, more challenges? What? How would you describe the state? Uh, it's very tough. Yeah. It's very tough. It's very, it's very, very challenging tough. for us because, like I said, we're working differently, and we don't. We we really don't want to go into soap, biz, you know, yeah. soap things, which are you know the bread and butter of most companies in Canada right now, mm -hmm. and we don't want to do that. So we have to be careful of what we're doing, and also the projects that we're you know choosing, like Disobey and Megantic, obviously uh, one being you know uh, taking place in 1999, and the other one being about an explosion, train explosions are, you know are huge projects which asks for big budgets, you know, from our side of the country. So it's tough for us. It is very tough. And this chain reaction, this next project that we want to do, is also an expensive project, even more than the two that we just did. So we have to be careful. Yeah. But basically it's work, 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 that's <laughs> it. And we're, wake up we're, in the morning and... We're thinking, yeah. how are we going to make this happen? Fuck around. Yeah. 
and you're having dinner and you're talking about work and you're just exactly. yeah. 24 7. Home, yeah, send email. <laughs> it's a bit sick, actually. <laughs> it's a bit sick and trying but, to do know, our best. What to... we want to do is the sketch artists in English as well because we think we could commission that and we, we could, you know, we could do it. And uh, with a bit more budget, put the money, you know, in the artwork and make it more. Even and we more never good. listen what the the streamer or the diffuser wants. <coughs> oh, we want something. I, we I think would, we need in this of that. Yeah, we, we, we heard the we heard the, the other day. We need blue sky crime. <laughs> yeah, but in For two, two months, weeks. Gonna, two weeks in two yeah. months, we're gonna say no, no, no. We we have that. We sound black, uh, black crime, darkish. We never listen to them because I, I think it's if it's not coming from the heart, it won't happen. It won't be. You don't have the chance to because you know a project. It's always difficult to build, and you never know it's going to be good at the end. So no. better to follow your heart, and after that, movie God will decide. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. 